Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. That was absolutely fantastic. A big thank you to all of you who helped make it possible. I also just wanted to, you know, the kids, you know, the students that went, uh, what an absolute uh, blessing that they have been to us, uh, sharing their stories and, and watching them continue to grow up in faith and, and make their faith their own. Uh, and a huge shout out to all of the Fusion and our Kids Quest leaders who have just continued to invest in the next generation. Can we just give them a big thank you? So it is great to be back with you guys. I think uh, I think Trevor might have mentioned it last week. Uh, Brian McMillan over at Centerpoint uh, had uh, asked if I would uh, come over and uh, teach at their Massapequa campus and uh, had a really great time doing that. A lot of folks uh, may not realize, but uh, the culture among the churches on Long Island is a really great uh, thing that's going on right now. When I first came out to the island uh, 20 over 20-something years ago now, uh, the the culture among the churches wasn't great. There was a lot more uh, sense of animosity even or competition among many of the churches. And um, since uh, back way, way, way back in those days, uh, I was at a uh, church over on the North Shore at the time before we started Beacon about 15 years ago. And uh, Brian and uh, John Yenchko at North Shore Community Church and Steve Tomlinson at Shelter Rock Church and a handful of other churches, we got together and said uh, we wanted to be united as Christ Church here on the island. And uh, we have seen some really great things happening, a whole lot of encouragement and support going among the churches and uh, real resourcing of both each other uh, and also church plants throughout the island. And so it has been an absolute encouragement to be all uh, to be a part of that. And you guys helped make that possible as well uh, with your encouragement to other congregations and to other Christians and helping them find churches and supporting what we do here, which helps support a whole lot of other churches throughout the island. So thanks, you guys, for all of that as well. But it is great to be back home. Um, and uh, I am uh, real excited about uh, today and next week because it is Vision Sunday, and uh, we are going to be talking about some things that have been kind of percolating in my soul for a little while now. But before we get there, I need to tell you about uh, the very first speeding ticket I got, which was a day after I got my license. So a day after I got my license, I was driving a Plymouth Reliant K, uh, which is, some of you are like, Plymouth, I've never even heard of that, yes. And Reliant K, not a reliable vehicle. Anyway, this is not exactly an engineering marvel, and uh, it, it's not like it handles like a Formula One race car or anything like that, and I was driving it like it was, in fact, a, a NASCAR uh, vehicle, and so I was up on Route 80, just past uh, Willowbrook Mall in uh, New Jersey. Some of you guys might know that area. And I was, uh, I, was, I was punching it. I was in some pretty heavy but fast moving traffic. And uh, I was uh, weaving in and out of the traffic. I was passing people in the shoulders on both sides of uh, the freeway. I mean, one day, I've got all the experience in the world. 
in my expert driving skills, and I was trying to get that little engine to break 100 miles an hour and uh, pushed it real close. Uh, before I realized, I had to slow down for something, and then all of a sudden the lights go on and all of this. The officer pulls me over, and, uh, you know, this, this is looking pretty bad because, you know, what they can hit you for is like a whole list of things. It's not just like, oh, you were speeding. Here's a little ticket or a little slap on the wrist, not when you're a punk kid. And so I, um, I, did, uh, I got pulled over, and he said that he had clocked me at 76 miles an hour, 21 miles over the speed limit. And I was so happy. <laughs> I was like, oh, this, this means I'm probably not going to jail today. Um, that he only got me at 76. And then I pleaded and begged and, and all the mercy he can ask for. And he knocked it down so that it wasn't 21 miles over. It was 19, which was like a different threshold. And it only gave me like four or five points on my license. So I didn't lose it. And I didn't get a reckless driving charge. And and so this was, of course, not my best stretch of decision-making. And uh, I did get uh, pulled over a week later as well, so I was also very slow on the uptake. But we make bad decisions all the time. And whenever there's an article about this sort of thing, kind of the, the decision-making processes that go inside the human mind, I, for many, many years, I just assumed that we are generally very rational people. And then you read the researchers, and they have done study after study after study that says, actually, we're not particularly rational people. We will often rationalize decisions we make. That is true if you want to consider that rational. Uh, but the reality is we can often make very stupid decisions, and then we backfill it with a whole lot of rationalizations to try to support what we have done. It happens in relationships. It can happen in job changes. I mean, investing in biotech firms... You've got all of the smartest people around investing millions of dollars in biotech firms that aren't producing anything. How do things like this happen? We make really, really smart people make really, really bad decisions. We do it all the time. Now, usually around this time of the year, we like to talk you know, about kind of the vision of the church. Not necessarily just bad decisions that we all make, but at the core of who we are as a congregation and what Jesus is doing for us and with us, it's a whole series of decisions. And recognizing what the researchers have well documented, that we often make pretty boneheaded decisions, factors in to who we want to be as a congregation. So here we are, it's Vision Sunday, this time of the year. We usually do like a whole bunch of charts and graphs and invites to do this and a challenge to do that and all of these kinds of things. And I usually have like, you know, little charts that show what's going on and, and all of this kind of a thing. And, and uh, we reflect on kind of last year and we look forward to next year and we talk about strategies and maybe even some new initiatives and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I don't have any of that for you today. Uh, as I was kind of working through some of this, this year for Vision Sunday, this week and for next, I want us to sit for a while with one of the challenges that Jesus gives to his would-be followers. I want to spend some time just thinking about it and unfolding it a little bit, reflecting on it, and letting the, this text start to sort of sink into our hearts a little bit more where I think we'll be confronted 
with a question that we are going to be faced with that requires a decision. The text is Mark chapter 10. If you could open in a Bible to it, we'll be here for the next couple of weeks, and so we'll be really familiar with it. Some of you will be already familiar with it. We'll be starting in verse 17, and we'll be kind of in and out of the text the whole morning, so it would be very helpful for you to have uh, the text there in front of you. So, and in it, what we're going to see is that Jesus is challenging us to a radically reoriented version of our lives. It's a reorientation around a powerful promise. And the question is, will we make the smart decision? So here's the thing. Everyone lives forever. And how we live now matters for how we will live then, this time in the future. So look at verse 17. It starts off and it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now jump down to verse 29 for a second. Jesus is ending this sort of a section here, and he says, truly I tell you, he's not talking to the man anymore, he's talking to his disciples, he says, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And so Jesus frames the whole of this conversation, what sounded at first like a conversation that was going to be simply about eternal life, which we have our own preconceived ideas about. He talks about this present age, and he contrasts it with the age to come. And so this is kind of a curious thing, because the guy didn't ask about this present age and the age to come, and yet he asked about eternal life. And when we hear that, we just think about living forever. Like what happens after we die? And once we die, then we live forever. And that's kind of like well, that's inheriting eternal life. But for the Jewish people, this idea of eternal life was much more full and robust as it, than it is for many of us. Especially the way we were raised and the values we put on kind of this transactional nature of, of faith and all of that kind of a thing. But what we end up seeing here is that this is more of the Hebrew mindset. They talk about the present age, and the prophets continue to talk about the present age. And the Jewish people understood that this present age, that, that's a term that you can use to describe this age that we all currently live in. It is an age that is filled with injustice. We try real hard, and we often do some really good things, but it is a world where good people will often suffer and wicked will often thrive. You'll see it over and over and over in the scriptures and the psalmist. They, are, they, they try to wrestle with this idea. You know, this week I was reading an article. It was about uh, Amazon, Bezos. And uh, it was a fascinating article. It said that it seems like Amazon might start getting into the retail business. Like actual retail outlets that you could go into a store and buy an Amazon Basics product. Which I thought was really fascinating. I was like, where in the world is this guy going to find that kind of real estate? Where is he going to find giant big box stores that he could open up all of these giant Amazon retail outlets? And I thought, well, of course, there's plenty of them now. Lots of the big box stores and the malls 
are closing across the whole of the country. But why are they closing? Oh, because of online retailers like Amazon. So wait, he drive them, you drive them out of business and then you go and you open up retail stores in their place. Like that is the, that's the rule of this present age. We see these kinds of things all the time. It's another one. I was reading a, an article about oil futures because I don't know why. Because uh, it's not like I invest in anything um, but uh, like that. But, uh, and so I'm reading this article and I talked to a friend of mine who's familiar with, uh, with this uh, industry as well. And the, the article, it was a government article, and they were, they were sort of decrying the fact that speculators in the oil futures market are driving up the cost of oil for end users. And I was like, wait, wait, I, so let me kind of understand this. Because if, if this were just high stakes gambling between like, you know, rich people, go ahead. You know, just go ahead and take each other's money and see who's ahead of each other. It's a race. But now it's driving up the price of people who are actually end users of oil. That means heating oil for your home and that means cars that, you know, you're trying to put gas in. So if, if poor people who are struggling to, help, to pay for their oil and their gas are paying more at the pump, but wealthy are getting that money because of the trading in oil futures, which is really a, a wealthier person's game, that means that the poor are actually paying for the oil, the rich people, the gas, the rich people are putting in their boats. That's the way this present age works. And you could multiply this 10,000 times. The scriptures, and I use those examples because the scriptures, the prophets talked about these kinds of things and they referred to it as this age. But they didn't stop there. They promised that there was an age to come. And the age to come is a different place altogether. Yes, it is about eternal life. But you see, everybody lives forever. So it isn't, it isn't simply living forever. Everybody lives forever. Every soul is now going to live forever. When the scriptures talk about eternal life and inheriting eternal life, it's talking about more than simply going to heaven. It's talking about a forever kind of life. It's about being part of an age where God himself rules, where injustice is put to death, where tears are wiped away, where we, we beat our weapons of war into plows so that we could feed the world. That's the picture that the prophets paint. They call it all sorts of names. It's the redemption of all things and it's salvation. Some of us call it that, but our salvation, it's so much more. And, and it's the kingdom of God. That's what's going on there. This guy wants to figure out, how do I get from this present age into the age to come? What is it that I'm going to have to do here to make sure when that age comes, I will be there as well. In fact, as a smart business person, no doubt, he's getting at the real heart of this question, the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What happens in this age matters for that age. It matters. They're connected. They are tied together. What we do determines what the age to come will be like for us. And if you think about it in those terms, then I think it would be hard 
to imagine any pursuit that is more important than this pursuit. If Jesus is right, then living this age with the pursuit of that age is all that ultimately matters. We take these few short years and invest them in such a way that the age to come looks and feels more like the hopes and dreams, the longings of the human heart. Now, Jesus challenges many of our beliefs on how we get to the age to come. He insists that most of our efforts at inheriting the age to come are simply not enough. And this is one of the most challenging things that we find as we get to the scriptures. For instance, one of the first things we see is that sincerity in your pursuit of Jesus isn't enough. It isn't enough. In verse 17 again, he says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus said, no one is good except God. So this guy runs up, he falls on his knees, he's saying good teacher, which is a hard thing to understand what, what it actually means and what he's kind of referencing there. But, but the whole gist of it, you can, see, you can hear it. This guy is really, he, he is somehow really infatuated with Jesus. He really likes him. He really respects him. And he, he really wants to hear what Jesus has to say about this. Nobody greets me this way. My dog will often greet me this way. And it makes me feel like king of the universe. Because, you know, she runs up and she's like, look, oh my goodness. Now it's a little bit shallow because, like, I might go out and take the garbage out. And when I come back in, she greets me like that again. And I'm like, all right, this seems like a little much. But, but you know, this is what this guy, he's running up. He, he's calling him, you know, he's giving this title filled with respect. This guy is sincere. But in all of life, we know that we can be sincerely wrong. Sincerity simply isn't enough. I was sharing my faith with some of our neighbors. And in situations like this, something that I hear all the time from people are things like, I really believe. I mean, what I really believe. This is what, I mean, my heart really tells me. And I'm certain about this. I mean, I am really sure that if there is a God, he's definitely like this. And he's definitely not like that. And I really, I mean, I can just feel it. I have so much conviction about these things. I'm certain God's this way, God's that way, whatever that way is. Sincerity, it's beautiful. Sometimes I have to just stop and ask, why should I believe what you are saying? Why should, I, why should I hear it as anything more than a desire of your heart for something? You could, you could be sincere about any multitude of things and be completely dead wrong. Look out into our culture today. Look into our country today. You have people on every side of every issue, all passionate and sincere about their convictions. And sincerely wrong. Sincerity is simply not enough. Jesus wants us to be more radically reoriented than that. We also see that living life as a good person isn't enough. And this is kind of a slap in the head for us. Look at verse 18 again. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father 
and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. The gist of this whole section here, I think, is that this guy was actually already doing what most everyone else would have thought was good enough. All of the people around him, and there's no reason to doubt him. Some people, they try to pull him apart here and like, oh, no, no, he was really a big hypocrite and he was a real legalist and all that. There's no hint of that in the text, not from Jesus' response or from his response. But from what we see, we could take this guy at his word. He really has, in fact, done all of these kinds of things. So I really have no reason to doubt him from the text. The man is genuine, and he's probably done a great job in keeping the law in many, many ways. I don't think there's any reason to think that he's really lying to himself or others. I think if we had known him, he would have had a great reputation, and he probably is using his money to do some good in the world. I mean, we know a lot about him just from these short texts and where he shows up in the other Gospels, but there's no reason to go much further beyond what, is seem, what seems to be the obvious reason here. But it makes me wonder, why was he asking? Why was he asking? Because... It, you know, if you think about it, all the religious leaders of his day, Jew and probably even most of the Gentiles, would have looked at this guy's life and they would have come to the conclusion with his religious fervor, with his quality of life. Uh, back then, they would have looked at your blessings, your material blessings, and assumed that, that, that God had done that for you and to you. And they would have thought, here is a good, devout man that is pleasing to God and clearly on the right path to the age to come. In fact, if anyone is going to get into the age to come, this guy is certainly first in line. And yet something must not be quite right in his soul for him to come seeking more answers. I wonder if maybe something was, if there was some sort of a lingering doubt, maybe there was a question that perhaps subtly but persistently kept poking its way through his psyche. I think sometimes when we slow down just a little bit, we start to hear and wonder and feel and sense a similar thing. And most everyone that I talk to about Jesus, they believe that there is some threshold of goodness that is enough to get us into the age to come. Whatever you call it, heaven, nirvana, uh, utopia, it doesn't matter what you know, you're going to call it. Most everyone feels that way. And yet, what we see here is that it simply isn't enough. Jesus wants us more radically reoriented than that. We also see that achieving success in this age isn't enough. In verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. In the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, we learned that this guy wasn't just a, a young guy. He was a rich guy and he was a ruler. And so that's why he's often called the rich young ruler. The point is he had it really going on. Like he, he, was, he, was, he was rocking it. And we're going to talk a lot more about this particular part of it next week. But suffice to say, Jesus disrupts this whole line of thinking. I mean, most everyone would have thought this was the real 
up-and-comer kind of guy, an early social influencer. One thing you lack. You're not there yet. If you look close to it, most everyone would think that you're either there or certainly very, very close. And Jesus, in one elegant stroke, reveals just how impossibly far away from the Jesus way this young man found himself. This one thing you lack. What is that one thing? I think we can capture it in this idea that it is the radical reorientation of your life. It is your priorities, your values, your action. The one thing you lack is the complete surrender to Christ. Now this particular command, he's going to tell them, sell everything you have, give to the poor. This particular command, it's not a precise command for everyone, but it is precisely a command for everyone. Not everyone needs to give everything away, but everyone needs to give away everything that is in your way. You'll see this throughout the scriptures, a negative and a positive, right? It's the message of repent and believe. Leave your father, leave your family and follow. The disciples left their nets and they followed. Peter comes on the scenes, he says, repent and be baptized. There's a negative and there's a positive. And all of this is about the complete surrender that happens when we decide to follow Jesus. And this surrender is followed by this radical reorientation of our life. And it's the kind of a reorientation that only God himself can work in you. We're going to see again more of this next week. But the gist of this is that living this kind of reoriented life with all of the worldly forces that are working against us, with everything from this age conspiring against us, it is impossible to do this without God's prevailing grace. And with God's grace, it is not only possible, but it is guaranteed access to the age to come. That's what he tells us, that you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And Jesus calls us to reorient our short lives in this age around the forever of the age to come. It was 1910, in, and Japan had officially annexed Korea. And they set about to start systematically dismantling Korean culture. And so they went after many of the sites of national pride and either demolished buildings or they edited them to become Japanese monuments. And this went on for quite some time. By 1930, they began, the Japanese began to require all Korean citizens to participate in the state Shinto worship practices which meant on the first of every month, they would require everyone to gather around a shrine that was up on the mountains throughout the various villages and the towns. And each person would be required to bow down and worship the sun goddess of Japan. There are many Christians already in Korea at this time in history. And there was one particular teacher Lee Suk-on. She was a teacher at a Christian school 
in Korea. And uh, as a Christian who had already radically reoriented her life around Christ, she had a reputation for being a very devout kind of a follower. And of course, she found this forced worship repugnant. And for some time, it seems she and the kids would just hide in the school while others would go up and worship. But eventually, the pressure was becoming too great. And one day, she looked out and she saw the principal and the teachers starting to round up the kids and make sure that all of them together were going to go up to the shrine to worship. And so she closed her door of her room and she fell on her knees and she prayed. And there was a knock at her door of a classroom and it was the principal and the principal said Miss Ahn you, you have to come and, and worship at the shrine and he starts to reason with her seeing her resistance and he's like listen you know most of the kids in this school are Christian kids all of the faculty are Christian faculty I the principal am a Christian as well but we cannot resist such a powerful and brutal force. And it's selfish for you to try, because if you do, you're going to bring down the wrath of the Japanese on all of us. Everyone's going to suffer. They may even close the school. Miss On, you must come up to the mountain with us. And so she did. They all knew that everyone, all the Christians, would hate this idea of bowing to the idols. But what could they possibly do? Anyone who was refusing to bow was branded a traitor. They could be tortured. In fact, many Christians had already been killed in, Japanese, in the Japanese occupation of Korea. If anyone didn't show up, they knew that there would be severe consequences. So they approach the shrine. They gather the students, the faculty, they all head up into the mountain and, the, and along with them come the rest of the, the people from the town. This was an incredible burden. The students saw Miss On and they said, look, even Miss On now is capitulating. And she began to pray. She said, Lord, I'm so weak, but I am your sheep. So I must follow and obey. Lord, watch over me. They all started up the mountain. A voice calls out for attention. And everyone stiffens their back and gets ready for the ceremonial bow. And the commander continued and he said, Our profoundest bow to Amaterutsu Amikami, the sun goddess. And everyone in unison bent with their deepest of bows. All but one, Miss On. A murmur passes through the crowd. People begin to notice that she has refused to bow. And she said that she could feel in that moment her fear and her guilt melting away. And a spirit-infused sense of calm start to descend upon her. And she had a sense. She could, she could nearly hear it, but she had a sense that the Spirit of God was just encouraging her and assuring her that she had done well. So she spends some months fleeing the authorities. And after living and hiding for some time, she decides to go to Tokyo and plead the case 
for persecuted Christians in Korea. And she was promptly arrested, tortured, and spent six years in prison. And then with the liberation of the Korean people, in, on August 17, 1945, Miss An and a handful of survivors left prison. Less than half of the Christians in that prison made it through the persecution. And she was greeted with a shout in front of the crowds that had gathered for their release. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, these are the ones who for six long years refused to worship the Japanese gods. They fought against severe torture, hunger, and cold, and have won out without bowing their heads to the idol worship of Japan. Today, they are the champions of faith. The crowd that gathered there, they shouted praise to Jesus. They began to sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels before him fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. We read stories like this, and as a spiritual family, we have to recognize that we have this bold promise from our loving Savior that we are challenged to seize. So who will we be a year from now? When we gather up again next September, next fall, who will we be? Will, we be, will it simply be more of the same? Will we just continue to try to muster more sincerity or work harder? Are we still going to wonder if, if we're doing all that is needed to, to dwell with Jesus in the age to come? Or will our orientation just resist being reordered in these radical sorts of ways? And will we continue to be confronted with false idols and our self-centeredness? And ultimately, will we walk away from Jesus sad with a cloud of self-doubt and apathy and impotence? I think that as a church this year, we get to double down on some of the essentials of our faith. We get to challenge each other to, to burn the ships and to radically reorient our lives and our priorities and our resources toward the coming kingdom. This is, this is the making of disciples in, in our one-on-one -on -one and, you know, our, our discipleship groups and in our small groups and through our classes and in our ministry teams and among the staff and through our, our care pastors to be able to see that we are getting serious about the making of disciples, Disciples who follow Christ with a fullness and a radical surrender and an obedience so that we are ready for every challenge that we face. You know, Jesus loved people in such practical ways. He taught the truth and he challenged people who were far from God, lost people to repent and to follow him. And that is our mission as well. We get to love people in these incredibly sacrificial ways and we get to teach people about Jesus and we get to challenge them to follow our Lord and our Savior. That we might become a church that can send people out on mission to reach lost people near and far. To represent our Savior well. I can just see, I can imagine that one day we will more consistently than even today, we will draw our happiness from a deeper well than what the world offers. And I can see a picture of us as a church family where each and every one of us, we live less and less by the values of this world and more and more by the kingdom values 
of the age to come. I can imagine us beginning more aggressively to beat back the distractions and the, and the diversions so that our souls can find genuine Sabbath rest in God. I can imagine us regularly experiencing the joy of leading people who are far from God into faith and helping them to grow up into full maturity of Christ. And when those things happen, we will be bringing this age, we will be dragging this age into the age to come, and it will be a spectacular adventure. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.